0: Hey, Rachel. Sup, Miles. What's the deal with Lockheed?
1: He's a space dragon.
0: Yeah, but he's also a dragon dragon, right? I mean, he first shows up in Kitty's fairy tale.
1: Sort of. I mean, there is a purple dragon named Lockheed in that story, but it's not Lockheed proper. He first shows up in the Brood Saga and stows back to Earth with the X-Men.
0: What about the big Lockheed in Excalibur?
1: The one who powers Nazi Excalibur's interdimensional train? Eh, he's just that universe's version of Lockheed.
0: As opposed to Earth-616 Lockheed, who's Kitty's pet? Well,
1: not exactly. Lockheed's sentient. Huh? He also has very strong opinions about Kitty's love life, and he ships her in Colossus.
0: Okay.
1: In fact, for a really long time, the only time Lockheed ever talked was to tell Pete Wisdom how much he hated him when no one else was around.
0: So maybe less pet than sidekick.
1: Yeah, but I mean, he's also got his own stuff going on. He's a hero of his people, and he gets occasional romantic subplots with Lady Dragons.
0: Well, that's pretty cool.
1: Also, he spent a really long time spying on the X-Men for sword in exchange for political favors. What?! I'm Rachel Edidin. And I'm
0: Miles Stokes. And
1: we are here to explain the X-Men.
0: Because it's about time someone did.
1: Welcome to the 24th episode of Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our very favorite superhero soap opera.
0: Today, we're going to be picking up where we left off after episode 20, X-Men number 168, which immediately follows the resolution of the Brood Saga.
1: There are two things that you need to know going in. The first one is that the New Mutants are around now. They're a team. They have their own series, so they're, they're doing stuff parallel to this.
0: Yeah, so for an introduction to those guys, check out our last episode. And secondly,
1: Kitty has been demoted from an active member of the X-Men to a member of the more age-appropriate, entirely training-based team, the New Mutants.
0: And she is really not happy about that.
1: That brings us to X-Men 168. It's basically a standalone. It's going to reset the status quo and clear the stage between the big stuff that just happened and the big stuff on the horizon.
0: Now, we see this all the time in Chris Claremont's run of X-Men. There'll be a big story, very epic, often very dark, a lot of stuff happens, and then we'll just have, you know, the X-Men at the mansion, or training in the danger room, or playing baseball, or something, just to sort to get things back to normal introduce any potential new readers to what the status quo is
1: in this case all of that stuff is sort of structured around kitty's fight to get back on the x-men and it opens with one of the iconic panels and one that holds a very very special place in my heart for the obvious reason that it's just a splash page of kitty pride standing in a doorframe yelling professor xavier is a jerk
0: and actually that is i believe the title of this issue which makes me really happy i didn't realize that until i reread it for this episode
1: I mean, she's not wrong.
0: Uh, she's totally not. She's also just very much a teenager. Yeah,
1: ironically, this is actually one of the few arcs in which Professor Xavier really isn't a jerk.
0: Well, you know, it's a, it's Kitty. She's a teenager. Nobody understands her except her diary and maybe Ilyana and maybe Lockheed. Okay, so she's not a normal teenager, but, you know, whatever. Moving on. So that's
1: one of the things that propels it. It's also the first place we really see how tight she and Ilyana have gotten.
0: Now, I- Ilyana Rasputin is Colossus's little sister. We've seen her—we've uh, actually covered her before in a previous episode about Ilyana and Storm magic miniseries. All the stuff with her demonic backstory, that isn't really factoring in here, Kitty doesn't really know about it. She just knows Ilyana is older these days because some weird stuff happened and is her friend. It's
1: going to be coming up soon. In fact, it's going to come up for the first time in X-Men proper really explicitly In this arc, but for now, basically, they're just BFFs. And, you know, one of my other favorite things about this is Kitty has this hardcore rivalry with the New Mutants, and it's pretty much entirely one-sided. They don't really care.
0: Right, I mean, they kind of resent that she resents them, but this is really all coming from Kitty Pryde. Yeah,
1: there's a cover that kind of insinuates that it's a two-sided thing later, but it's really not. It's really just her flipping out and trying to get back on the X-Men and being... Adorable and teenagery and hijinks-y about it. There's you know a montage of her trying to find different ways to suck up to Professor X. And,
0: yeah, I love that part. Yeah. Now actually speaking of the team, the various teams, we should probably talk about who the X-Men are at this point in chronology.
1: Cyclops is gone for the moment. He is off in Alaska, and we're gonna get back to that later. So leading the X-Men is Storm.
0: And she's been leading the X-Men for really quite a while, like for the most part, since the Dark Phoenix saga, right? Since Scott left the team.
1: Yeah. They sort of did awkward semi-co-leading push and pull during the brood saga, but really she She's been in charge for a while, and she's going to continue to be in charge. We've also got Colossus, Nightcrawler, and Wolverine, who's around right now, but is going to be gone for most of the rest of this arc.
0: This is actually one of the leaner X-Men teams we've seen. The team is pretty small at this point. That's going to lead us to some interesting storytelling opportunities, and also, as you might expect, to the team starting to expand in a little bit.
1: I want to go back to Storm, because while she's not very present in 168, this is Storm's arc. I mean, there's other stuff that goes on, but... The big connecting thread is going to be about Storm's development as a character. And again, we'll be back to that in just a minute. Meanwhile, the other big theme of the upcoming arc is going to be relationships that do and don't work.
0: So we'll see, for instance, Professor Xavier and uh, Lilandra, who's the Empress of the Shi'ar Empire, who's his lover, his partner. He's just gotten his body rebuilt due to some complicated stuff that we talked about at the end of the Brood Saga episode. Theoretically, he should be able to walk, but he's been having trouble with it, and she's been sort of helping him as he's been trying to rehabilitate himself and been very frustrated that he can't do so.
1: And this is like the one drama-free relationship in X-Men, which is um, Nightcrawler and Amanda Sefton, who are just kind of adorable.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we've seen Amanda Sefton before. She grew up with Nightcrawler, and she's sort of a, a wizardy sort sorcery kind of character whose day job is being an airline attendant, which I always thought was kind of bizarre and awesome. Uh, But they're actually surprisingly healthy, especially in a book like X-Men.
1: Yeah, they're great. They're sort of the fun couple. And they are the one of these sets who are actually still together in X-Men continuity or together again.
0: That's true. That's very true in the current Nightcrawler Um, series.
1: You see little cuts away to to cameos of all of these guys. And the the last one you see is Scott Summers and Lee Forrester, who basically continue to have occasional no-strings-attached hookups, and it's lovely.
0: Yes, Lee Forrester, who Scott spent a lot of time uh, on a boat with, uh, inadvertently getting into mutant adventure after mutant adventure, despite just trying to fish.
1: It's not just romantic relationships either. Again, we see a lot of emphasis on Kitty and Eliana's friendship, and also on Wolverine and Nightcrawlers. The other friendship this issue kindles, we addressed briefly in our cold open, and that is the introduction well, reintroduction of Lockheed.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about how this goes, because the last time we saw Lockheed, he was still on the Brood Homeworld when it blew up, right?
1: Right, and throughout a lot of the action of this issue, we see sort of a sinister narrator who's been talked about, you know, he's been stowing away. They don't know he's there. He's hungry. He's getting more and more irritable.
0: I was thinking it was Eric the Red because it's always Eric the Red, but sadly it's not. Thankfully, yeah, it might be Eric the Red. Eric the Red disguised as Lockheed.
1: Who then disguises himself as Eric the Red. Vampires pretending to be people, pretending to be vampires.
0: It's like the Quaker Oats box. It just goes into infinity. It's forever. That's the cream of wheat box whatever quaker oats cream of wheat I don't someone didn't of them. read
1: the search for signs of intelligent life in the universe
0: i just ate a lot of fruit loops when i was a kid is all i'm saying it's cream of wheat so kitty is you know being sort of annoyed at the current turn of events that she can't change professor xavier's mind and rejoin the x-men and so she's like well whatever i guess i'll at least uh make some cider for people and that that would at least be a nice thing i can do grumble grumble and uh wants to see how many people are around so she checks the mansion computer and she's like wait there's an extra life sign what's up with that I should go check it out.
1: Now, the extra life site isn't actually Lockheed. It is a Sidrian hunter Oh, shit.
0: Sidrian hunters. I love Sidrian hunters. They're like a cross between like like manta rays and I don't know, vacuum cleaners or something. I don't know what it is about their monster design that I love so much, but it makes me happy every time I see them. Like if we could have an angry European mob riding Sidrian hunters, I'm pretty sure my head would explode with joy.
1: Okay. I'll remember that for your next birthday.
0: Please do, or our next anniversary, maybe eleven is the Angry Mob on Sidri and Hunter anniversary. After all, I looked it up, and Landers told me
1: that's reasonable. Yeah, Miss Manners is kind of on the same page. But, you know, I feel like the Sidrian Hunters are more kind of your thing, though. So this is, we should give them to you in a context where you can really focus on them, not them as a larger context for something else.
0: Okay, so in a world where the Sidrian Hunters are the greatest creatures ever created by mankind, a really minor plot element happens, but at least Lockheed comes out of it. So yeah, basically the Sidrian Hunters- So it's Harvey, Hunters,
1: Janet, Peter Corbeau, the Sidrian Hunters, and an angry <laughs> European mom.
0: Someday somebody's going to write an X-book about all the stupid little shit we're obsessed with in this podcast. It's going to be amazing. Anyway, so the Sidrian Hunters, they were not the man. Mantra- a long time ago when Deathbird and the Brood first showed up and so uh, Kitty goes to check them out she's in her black and yellow costume although she's kind of bitter this time again, because again she's been
1: demoted to it
0: that's the new mutants costume now and goes to check it out and uh, sure enough Sidrian Hunters and things are not looking good when all of a sudden purple dragon shows up breathing fire on them it's Lockheed it's this dragon that she met on the Brood homeworld who it looks like is unexpectedly here in addition to the Sidrian Hunters being unexpectedly here um, and they
1: are immediately best bros forever they take out the Sidrian Hunters with and- Colossus Help. And it's awesome. But the best thing about this issue, the very best thing about this issue is what comes after it. At the very end, there's a page called Kitty's Costume Corner. Now, if you've been following this podcast or reading X- this era of X-Men, you know that Kitty Pride changes costumes a lot. In fact, if there was a Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men drinking game, Kitty Pride changes her costume would be the finish your drink.
0: Yeah, Clarissa Darling has nothing on Kitty Pride.
1: Oh oh I can run with this. She is she is the Claudia Kishi of the X-Men.
0: Wait, so who's Sam coming in the window? Is that Doug Ramsey? Is that what's going on here?
1: No. What? God, maybe yeah.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, this is why you listen to this uh, show. I was, I
1: was running with Babysitter's Club.
0: Oh man, I was going Clarissa Explains It All.
1: I think these are probably compatible chronologies, but Clarissa Explains It All is way better than Babysitter's Club, so.
0: Somewhere on an archive of our own, what we just described already exists.
1: Someday there'll be, you know, Rachel and Miles explain classic Nickelodeon.
0: I think we already did that with our Pete and Pete scene.
1: We didn't really explain it, we just kind of celebrated it.
0: Well, anyway, X-Men.
1: Anyway, X-Men. So yeah, Louise Jones, who was the editor, had asked people to send in designs for Kitty's new costume. I just, I love the the kind of, the self referentiality of all of this because yeah Kitty is going to continue to change costumes at a prodigious rate
0: and so all right I hereby propose a game
1: oh yeah we haven't done an art challenge in a really long time so artists who feel like who want to prompt this week here's yours design a new costume for Kitty Pride any era any name any iteration of the character we want to have our own Kitty's costume corner
0: but in the meantime I would like to propose that every time Kitty gets a new costume in this podcast drink if you're listening to the show while driving maybe not in that case but otherwise drink
1: Okay, that wraps up 168. And from here, things are going to divide into a few mostly parallel threads.
0: Uh, although it is important to note that thanks to Kitty's victory over the Cedrine Hunters and really doing well, despite all of her previous efforts to get back on the team failing, Xavier's like, well, okay, you can be a probationary member. And she's very, very happy.
1: Okay, so from here, things are going to divide into a few mostly parallel threads. The story goes back and forth between them in the actual comics, but they don't really intersect until later. So we're going to handle them separately for the moment. And the first one of
0: those is the Morlocks. I have been waiting for the Morlocks. Mainly, I've been waiting for Callisto.
1: Me too. I think a lot of us have been waiting for Callisto, Miles. All
0: our lives.
1: Storm's been waiting especially hard for Callisto
0: i really want to turn that into innuendo but it's just it's already there
1: also i should disclose this is going to be the rachel goes really 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 hardcore suddenly shippy episode people ask us a lot about whether we have non-canon or sort of subtextual x-men ships and for the most part the answer is no but for me at least the main exception to that is storm and all of the ladies
0: all of the ladies
1: all of the ladies
0: well what about all of them what about
1: all of them
0: well okay then So, yeah, Morlocks. Let's talk about this. Now, we've actually already met one of the Morlocks a number of issues ago in X-Men 148.
1: And that's Caliban. He is a mutant who can sense the presence of other mutants, and he briefly tried to kidnap Kitty in X-Men 148. He has, um, I think I wrote this down on the outline as, Caliban has Kitty feels.
0: Kitty feels with a Z, you wrote, in fact. Wow! Wow! So Caliban, uh, he basically just wanted a friend. He's a really lonely dude. He's very strange looking. He's got like this chalky white skin and really weird looking features.
1: And unfortunately, he fixated on a 14 year old, which is a little bit super creepy.
0: But at the same time you got you kind of have to feel sorry for the guy. He's just really lonely. He just handles it in some spectacularly terrible ways. Yeah, he's
1: very childlike throughout. Like he really just wants a place to fit in. And that's a running theme with the character. It's something that we're going to see in X-Factor years later and makes some e- exceptionally poor choices, even even poorer choices than kidnapping a kid. And again, it's all propelled by that of, of wanting to have a place where he fits and is useful.
0: So the moral of the story is don't be lonely and talk to teenage girls because you'll end up as the horseman of death for Apocalypse.
1: Now, there's something else about the introduction of the Morlocks in this arc that I want to touch on. It's basically Claremont deciding that he wants to play Barbarella, Queen of the Galaxy for a couple issues.
0: Oh, man, we'll come back to that, but there are some ridiculously exact parallels. Like, and we've seen Claremont homage stuff before, like with the Hellfire Club from uh, the old Avengers TV show, I Yeah, believe. this isn't
1: even homage. This goes beyond that. It starts by reintroducing a prior X-Men who had left the team, and that is Angel.
0: Yeah, now Claremont's never really known what to do with Angel, in my opinion. He, like, he shows up in X-Men a lot and doesn't really have a, that much of a personality. This time, he's basically... Basically, the person who gets kidnapped and propels the plot. Oh, he
1: is 100 percent. A MacGuffin in this. He is a damsel in distress. He does not have a single line.
0: So yeah, uh, Candy Southern, who's Angel's girlfriend, comes back to their place, notices he's gone, and he's attacked by a big dude named Sunder, um, and calls the X-Men for help.
1: She is rescued by an extremely nude nightcrawler, who literally teleports out of the bath that he is in with Amanda Sefton to catch her, and there, there are a lot of very artful, like, repositionings to keep this from being actually pornographic, but it's kind of a fantastic and hilarious scene.
0: I'm just saying, if I were sharing a bath with Amanda Sefton and then immediately teleported from there to rescue someone mid-air. That could get really anatomically awkward depending on how things had been going. Isn't
1: Nightcrawler covered in fur? I feel like that really kind of puts a damper on the appeal of the whole romantic bubble bath thing.
0: I don't know. It's like when I'm in when I'm in the shower and I turn my beard into weird shapes with with shampoo and soap and stuff. I think it would be like that but with his whole body.
1: Well, that escalated quickly. <laughs> um, so anyway, anyway, uh Nightcrawler puts on some pants at some point and They meet up with the rest of the X-Men and decide that they need to go find Angel, figure out who's taken them.
0: I'd like to point out that Kitty now has a new green costume, drink.
1: And she's also got a pet dragon now, and who she hands off to Amanda to sit. And Amanda, being as she has been raised, you know, a sorceress, is adept in the care and feeding of dragons, and thus all of that's taken care of. And the X-Men go off to track down Angel. And we mentioned that Professor X is kind of a good dude in this arc, and this is actually a specific point that I think is, is worth touching on.
0: Yeah, so Wolverine's actually not in this issue because he's off in the Wolverine miniseries by Chris Claremont and Frank Miller. I really missed this era because if a character was in one book, that character couldn't be in another book at the same time time. Like, it actually paid attention to what different characters were doing at different points, and these days, I mean, geez, Wolverine's everywhere, Deadpool's everywhere, it's Scarlet ridiculous. Witch
1: is everywhere, weirdly.
0: So, Storm says to Xavier, well, okay, you know, we're gonna need a tracker to figure out what's going on. What about Rain Sinclair of the New Mutants? What about Wolfsbane? And Xavier actually replies, I understand your needs, Storm, but the New Mutants are not X-Men, nor are they meant to be. They are students. They do not go on missions. I will not place these children at risk, Storm, and that is final.
1: And, you know, of course he's gonna go back on that again forever, repeatedly, but it's nice while it lasts it's really nice while it lasts so what they find out when they get to the sewers is that angel has been kidnapped by again the morlocks
0: so let's talk about what the morlocks are because they're going to be a big deal in x-men going forward for a good long time they live in the sewers slash and these underground subway tunnels slash an old bomb shelter they're basically mutants who live outside of society now, one thing I find interesting about them is they're really portrayed mostly as just homeless people. People in sort of old, ragged clothes who are are kind of dirty and uh, and clearly, and, and sort of downtrodden. And,
1: yeah, their visual coding is much more that than mutants, and that's really interesting. Yeah,
0: I mean, a few of them look strange, like, uh, say, Mask, or um, well, really, just just Mask at this point. And but Mask most isn't part, even
1: that outrageously weird looking.
0: Yeah, so you're not seeing the sort of monstery mutants you would often see as outcasts in later years.
1: An interesting push and pull with the Morlocks is whether their exile and their story and their contrast with the X-Men is about human mutant passing privilege or whether it's about class privilege. And that's something that's going to come up really, really explicitly, actually, in the current Storm Ongoing series, number two, which actually calls back to this arc a lot, which you should be reading if you're not, because it is... Absolutely fantastic, and the best Storm that I've seen written since maybe this era.
0: I would completely agree. This is my favorite Storm since Claremont in the current Storm book. But yeah, let's talk about some of the uh, Morlocks who we're going to see a few times. Now, we've already mentioned Caliban. Um, There's also Sunder. Sunder's basically a big, strong dude, and that's pretty much it. He's mainly notable because he will briefly, on Muir Island, join a sort of substitute team of X-Men before being very shortly thereafter killed.
1: Uh, There's also Plague, who's pretty much exactly what it says on the tin. She can touch people, it makes them horrifically sick. If she touches them again, they usually die.
0: And then there's Mask, that's M-A-S-Q-U-E. Mask is super creepy. Mask is really uh, traditionally ugly and deformed looking.
1: And he can can change other people's appearance. And much later on, he's going to somehow turn himself into a very pretty woman and give Callisto tentacle arms. But anyway...
0: Callisto. Now, she's the reason we're all here. She's the reason we all showed up.
1: And Callisto is straight up the tyrant from Barbarella. I mean, she looks just like her. She talks just like her. She calls Angel pretty pretty a whole bunch. She's basically kidnapped Angel to... Play Barbarella. She's gonna marry him because he's pretty.
0: Yeah, like, that's why she had Sunder punch Candy Southern out of a window. That's why she kidnapped Angel. She just wants the the prettiest man in the world as her her consort.
1: And the first thing she does when she meets the X-Men, which I love, is cite H.G. Wells.
0: I am Callisto. My brethren have taken the name Morlocks after H.G. Wells' rulers of the Netherworld. This is our domain. You visit at your peril, and when you address me, you keep a civil tongue in your head. Or you lose it!
1: Oh, God, I love Callisto so... Much.
0: So the name, we've seen Caliban. Obviously, Caliban's a character from Shakespeare's The Tempest. Callisto is actually a character from Greek mythology. She was a nymph that uh, served Artemis, the the goddess of the hunt. Much like many women goddesses or otherwise in Greek mythology, she was tricked and raped by Zeus, who pretended to be Artemis. When Artemis found this out, she did a super victim-blamey thing, turned Callisto into a bear and her baby into a bear, and exiled them into the sky to be the big uh, little dipper, Ursa Major and Minor.
1: Which, you know, you can make some interesting parallels to Callisto and the general sense of being exiled from society for reasons that are much more about social and class privilege than her own. And she's also the thing that I find most interesting about Callisto is that she is, she is super butch-coded.
0: And in fact, in the X-Men animated series, uh, she shows up a few times and the first time she did in the Spanish dub, the people who were doing the dubbing thought the character was male and had a male voice actor do her voice. Later on, they did a female voice actor in her subsequent appearances.
1: And you know, the thing is, I said she's, she's very butch-coded, but she's Also, she's really clearly female, and I think that detail says less about her gender performance than about just the really radically exaggerated gender dimorphism in superhero art. I have a friend who a few years ago actually wrote a paper on this based around the fact that a very prominent comics artist had referred to Wonder Woman as kind of androgynous.
0: I don't even know what to do with that.
1: And I mean, I've done stuff with male characters and feminine and queer coding um, in the portrayal of, of male villains. Again, you know, the physical gender dimorphism in comics is just ridiculously extreme. And that means that characters who don't fall into those extremes get read in really nebulous spaces. And it, it can be kind of a radical move. You don't see a lot of sympathetic butch women in comics.
0: That's actually one thing I like about this era's New Mutants, uh, drawn by Bob McCloud, is that the teenagers are drawn like teenagers. The the male characters are not significantly bigger or more than the female ones. The female characters don't have gigantic breasts... ...because they're like 14. It's nice to see that. It's refreshing.
1: Going back to the story. So uh, they're fighting these guys. Kitty gets hit by plague and Caliban rescues her, sort of.
0: Yeah, and um, I should note that Kitty's in really bad shape... ...and Caliban changes her into a nightgown and puts her to bed. Which Take a drink. Take well, a- half take a, a drink. drink. Half a somewhat creepy, uncomfortable drink, mainly. She convinces him when she's briefly awake... ...like, hey, you've got to help the X-Men, please. I promise I'll stay with you if you just do this. And so he's terrified of Callisto, but he goes and confronts her.
1: And that promise is going to come back to haunt Kitty later, but not relevant here. Meanwhile, the other X-Men are fighting Callisto and the other Morlocks, and Kurt straight up threatens to kill Callisto, but they call his bluff, and he doesn't. He can't bring himself to, so Storm ends up straight up challenging Callisto to a duel.
0: A duel for the leadership of the Morlocks, because is not going to go back on her plan, which is not to let the X-Men leave, even though Kitty is dying— And so Storm says, all right, let's do this.
1: And the cover that references this, I want to say, is one of the slashiest X-Men covers ever on multiple levels.
0: Because they're knives and they're slashing and it's Callisto and Storm. And, And
1: other than that, it's basically a kiss lean.
0: I see what you did there.
1: Yeah, I'm very proud of that. Gold Star, Thank you. Uh,
0: so, yeah, they fight, and um, Closter's like, seriously? Well, I mean, you can't use your powers. That would not be a real duel.
1: So Storm straight up stabs her through the heart.
0: Yeah, there's this really well-drawn fight scene, and we remember that, oh, wait, Storm is actually amazingly skilled at hand-to-hand combat. We kind of forgot because she's zapping everyone with lightning all the time.
1: Yeah, Storm was a scrappy street kid before she became a goddess. This is the arc that's going to bring her back to that. And here is where she really taps into it. So actually, let's talk for a minute about Storm's development over this arc.
0: Yeah, because in the previous issue, we saw Storm sort of uh, disturbed by the fact that her powers were getting less controllable and more violent. And here we see that really coming through in her attitude.
1: When we were talking about this this morning, you mentioned that you felt like this kind of came out of nowhere. But there's one specific thing that I can see that really leads directly to it. And this is the first time we've seen Storm leading the X-Men with neither Wolverine nor Cyclops around. Storm is someone who's defined herself previously very much in contrast to those two characters specifically, as a pacifist and as someone who gets to be sort of the heart of the team and to operate from a very sort of feelings-based place. But she's lost the guy who she counted on to be you know, the heavy hitter and the raw brutality, and she's lost the person who's the calculating strategist and she really has to tap into those things in herself in a way that she never has before.
0: Right. The X-Men function best when everyone can sort of take on the role they're best at. And in this case, a lot of the team members are gone for various reasons. Storm has a lot resting on her shoulders. And I think that would be really hard for anybody to handle in a healthy fashion.
1: And again, this is stuff that Storm is, in fact very good at and very practiced in it's just stuff that she's spent a long time very actively denying and, and subsuming
0: yeah now Callisto does live because there's there's a healer Morlock who's able to bring her back from the brink of death
1: but storm is now officially in charge of the Morlocks by right of arms
0: yeah now she doesn't really do much with this other than saying well okay now you're gonna let us go because I run this joint but she does invite the Morlocks back to Xavier's mansion saying hey we can take care of you that's kind of what the X-men do that's what Professor Xavier does
1: and Callisto and the other Morlocks basically say, fuck you and fuck your paternalism.
0: Well, more specifically, Caliban says, no, this is where we belong, but thank you.
1: Okay, well, whether Storm gets to rescue people is an ongoing and really interesting character juncture for her. And again, this is something that gets revisited very explicitly and very, very well in Storm number two.
0: Now, so they they head out of there. Um, In the meantime, we have a a guest issue uh, drawn by Walter Simonson, one of my favorite artists of all time, and God, it's so good. You know, I'm actually going
1: to go ahead and say Walter Simonson is my favorite superhero artist ever i keep on thinking that maybe it's just because one of the first superhero books i read a lot of was his run on thor so that really set my standards but no you know what i'm just gonna say he is the best superhero comics artist ever
0: and we're gonna see a lot more of him in in x factor later which i'm looking forward to getting to
1: it's got the best opening splash page of storm um, x-men 171 does but that leads directly into a different arc x-men 171 is going to introduce two new and very important members of the team rogue and rogue's accent
0: You look as nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. I'm pretty
1: sure that line's not actually in the comic ever.
0: It's in Night of the Sentinels Part 1, and I love it so much.
1: Cartoon Rogue is so on
0: point. She is, but this is really where we first meet Rogue as the Rogue we will later come to know and love. She's appeared a couple of times before. We've covered that in a previous episode as a supervillain, actually, as a member of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. But now, having absorbed the personality and powers of Carol Danvers, Ms. Marvel she's coming to the X-Men for help.
1: The X-Men are really not happy about this. First of all, Carol Danvers is their bro. She's been running around with them. She fought the brood with them in space. Second, they really only know Rogue as a really ruthless supervillain. So when she shows up and says, you yeah, know, help me, and she's, she's really broken down here, the X-Men's collective opinion is either fuck her up and kick her out.
0: Except Professor Xavier, who, as Rachel, as you mentioned, this is really his I'm a very decent, thoughtful, compassionate person arc.
1: He kicks the other X-Men out while he talks to Rogue. And just as she's heading back outside, who should show up but Carol Danvers, binary,
0: who proceeds to punch Rogue into space.
1: And this brings up the important point that if you are going to get knocked into space, you should get knocked into space as drawn by Walter Simonson, because it's gorgeous. Now,
0: if you're not familiar with Simonson's work, it's sort of like a later take on Jack Kirby's very cosmic style. And so Rogue, you know, she just gets punched halfway to the moon. It's
1: like pre-Raphaelite Jack Kirby.
0: Wow, that's kind of awesome.
1: I cannot emphasize how good Simonson's art is. If you haven't read his run on Thor, I know we've talked it up before. Go stop doing whatever you're doing. Find it. Do it. It's stunning and brilliant and perfect.
0: Uh, rogue, having gotten punched in space, just says, my goodness, because that's her response to such things.
1: Yeah, she's, I mean, she's she is nigh invulnerable at this point, you know, blasting or otherwise. And she's pretty much okay about this. Meanwhile, Professor X and the other X-Men inform Carol that no rogue is here to stay, at which point Carol says, fuck this and fuck you and goes off to join the Starjammers.
0: Yeah, she's understandably pretty upset about this, says, hey, I never had really had any ties in this place anyway, and now I'm glad. Now, the other X-Men
1: may be willing to go along with at least not attacking Rogue, but they're still really pissed off that she's on the team, and Professor Xavier explains his stance really well.
0: "'I see. We pick and choose who we help. Is that it? Some are worthy, others are not. Who was it, Aurora? Told me Wolverine was an X-Man, not because of his sterling character, but his potential for good. That to deny him, though we abhor his violent nature, would thereby deny our true reason for being, which is to help him achieve that potential.' The same argument holds for Rogue, does it not? Of course, there's a risk in accepting her, but consider the alternative. At least with us, she has a chance for a better life. Deny her and we condemn her outright. And that I will never do to any mutant, so long as breath remains within me.
1: This explicitly is the difference between Silver and Bronze Age Professor Xavier. Yep. And you know, I give Professor X a lot of shit, but he's really good in this arc. Like, this Charles Xavier is the Charles Xavier that I can believe in as the significant character and as the character who represents the things that he's come to represent positively in the X-Universe.
0: Now, Rogue, uh, she is officially part of the X-Men at this point, and she's really going to come into her own as a character and as as an X-Man over the next few issues when the X-Men go to Japan.
1: Now, we're not going to cover a lot of what happens here. Uh, They're in Japan for Wolverine's wedding to Mariko Yoshida, and this intersects very directly with the Wolverine Limited series, which we're going to be covering next episode, so we're going to save most of the A-plot for that. There are a few specific things that you need to know that's relevant to what we're discussing right now.
0: The first thing is that Rogue, despite being mistrusted by everyone, especially Wolverine, who's very close to Carol Danvers, really earns her place on the team and bonds with Wolverine by effectively taking a bullet—well, a laser bullet, like in Painkiller by Judas Priest. Um, oh God! For the two of them, she almost dies saving their lives.
1: The second and most important thing about this arc is uh, Yukio, and specifically Storm and Yukio. Again, people ask about you know non-canon, official pairings. This one. This this is my x ship right here, Storm and Yukio. Yukio is a buddy of, of Storm. She's basically a ronin. She's punk as hell. She's a total daredevil. She and Storm meet up and bond tight and hard and fast, and I am keeping all of those implications in there. Um, and Storm kind of clicks into something that she's been hunting for in terms of her identity, which is sort of a more hard-edged, rebellious version of herself, which leads to point three
0: which is Storm's makeover. Now, we've mentioned our favorite Storm is Mohawk Storm, and this is where Mohawk Storm comes from.
1: Can we talk for a second? I didn't realize, while I was rereading this, how much that makeover very directly echoes everything Callisto's wearing when she meets her. Like, it's basically the same outfit, plus a Mohawk.
0: Kitty sees her and is just horrified at what she's become, but really, this is is where Storm's character evolution is taking her.
1: I want to say, this is very specifically, those two plot points— are the girl who goes to college, realizes she really likes girls, promptly shaves her head, comes home, and horrifies her very, very straight-edge best friend. That's that's Storm right here.
0: (laughs) Pretty much. Now, the other thing about this arc that we're going to get to, again, more next episode, Wolverine's wedding, it doesn't really go well. That's going to be because of the reason that what comes next doesn't go well, so let's dive right into that.
1: Well, let's not, actually. Let's talk about something that happens on the eve of Wolverine's wedding, which is that suddenly and out of nowhere, the X-Men see a great, big, fiery phoenix manifest. Fest over Tokyo.
0: Well, that can't be good, right?
1: Right, but they're distracted by the wedding, and they're distracted by someone who they meet at the wedding who's going to be the center of the final big f- thread of this arc.
0: Madeline Pryor. Now, we, we've alluded to Madeline Pryor before. She's a ridiculously convoluted character, but right now, less so. Scott and Alex and Corsair meet her when they go to meet the Summer's grandparents in Alaska. She's the pilot that picks them up. And she also, coincidentally, is visually identical to Jean Grey. And
1: this reads a little funny, because Paul Smith is the artist at this point, and he's actually never really drawn Jean Grey. I think maybe he's drawn one fly- flashback. So we kind of, and he's he's, in a, he's very, very stylistically different from his predecessor. So we kind of have to take it on everyone's word that Madeline's identical to Jean because she doesn't actually look just like any version of Jean we've seen before. I also want to point out this is happening in the B-plot throughout X-Men 169 to 173. So parallel to the other stuff.
0: Yeah. I think the development of Scott Summers and Madeline Pryor's romantic relationship it can come off as very abrupt if you don't describe it right. And we should point out that their relationship really develops over the course of almost a year of comics. And it really is believable and organic. It moves quickly, yes, but I really buy it.
1: And they actually address that. Yeah, I'm gonna say, you know, I love Madeline Pryor. She is, especially as she's initially written, she's a fantastic character. And it really, really sucks that the retcons around her happen the way they did, because she was terrific. She's, you know, when she first comes in, and the way she is for the first few years that she's running around with the X-Men, she's terrific. She is one of the best characters in this arc
0: so they develop this relationship but there are all these little things that um, Scott is suspicious about she won't really talk about her past she he finds out that she got into a plane crash the day that Jean Grey died and she that she was the only survivor from. and
1: later on he goes and checks the records for that and it turns out it wasn't just the same day it was the same moment these are going to be used to massively massively retcon Madeline Pryor later to be basically that grown to be Scott's perfect lady as part of a sinister plot (laughs)
0: <laughs> sinister plot
1: <laughs> but apparently that that wasn't claremont's original intention with this character
0: right so we actually uh found some interviews with chris claremont where he discusses this the original plan was that madeline Pryor that these things were going to be pretty much coincidences that it was going to be all about Scott sort of learning to move on from the X-Men. He was going to settle down with Madeline, maybe have a kid or two. Well, he, he did have a kid. Claremont really felt strongly that this was the natural course for most characters. He didn't stay in the X-Men forever. That was a really unhealthy thing to do. He wanted to see a team that would continually rotate membership-wise as people were superheroes for a while and then went back and led normal lives. He uh, wanted to see Madeline as a really decent person who actually worked well with Scott, even though she wasn't Jean.
1: I get those intentions, but I feel like when you were a writer who does that long game stuff and who does see that stuff that far back, I kind of feel like he should have known that even if he didn't pick up on those threads, someone was going to, because those are huge, huge hooks to drop and then just leave and say, no, they're coincidence. I mean, this is... I feel like Scott's suspicion is totally reasonable because, again, he is a guy who's been living in a Claremont plotted world. Nothing is insignificant. He
0: knows how these things work. And then
1: suddenly we're supposed to accept these things as I i don't buy that. And the rest of the X-Men are likewise suspicious. Again, they've been living in a Claremont plotted world. And the day before they meet this woman who looks exactly like Jean Grey, giant phoenix manifestation. We're already very set up to suspect that she's something other than what she seems.
0: And that sort of comes to a head when uh, Scott and Madeline are having a date night and he is looking troubled and straight up asks her, are you Jean Grey? Are you Phoenix reincarnated? And she decks him, understandably.
1: And then she apparently goes Dark Phoenix.
0: Right. his. She uh, just straight
1: up turns into the Dark Phoenix. And they're engaged at this point, aren't they?
0: Uh, yes, I believe they already are engaged.
1: She goes Dark Phoenix, cuts away, and the next time we see Scott, he's crashing out of the sky into the X-Mansion, basically yelling about how Dark Phoenix is back.
0: Right. And so the X-Men, understandably, freak out a little and go into battle mode. They're calling out; they're calling for help elsewhere. They call Corsair, and it turns out the Starjammer's been attacked. And they, they talk to Corsair just as the Starjammer blows up and kills him. They call Captain America of the Avengers just as the entirety of New York City is annihilated. Now,
1: a lot of these details and a lot of the things that are happening around the X-Men in very quick succession don't quite line up. The reason they don't quite line up, is a guy who we actually saw a couple issues before Encounter Scott and Madeline when they were flying back to Alaska. This is a priest who we last saw in the lead up to the Dark Phoenix saga, who dropped a picture of Jean, made it look like Scott had dropped it, and pointed out that she looked just like Madeline.
0: This guy is, in fact, everyone's favorite slash least favorite total asshole, Jason Wingard, Mastermind. When we last saw Mastermind, uh, Jean Grey, the phoenix, had essentially opened his mind to the cosmic world, and she'd driven him irretrievably insane. Apparently, he got better, and now he's back for revenge. Before, what his manipulations were because he wanted to accomplish a goal. Now, he just wants to hurt the X-Men, and boy, howdy, is he. And
1: we're going to learn that everything that has gone wrong for the X-Men in this arc, maybe except for the, the Morlocks kidnapping angel, has been his setup. He's the one who basically set things in place for Rogue to end up there, which is going to be what takes him down eventually. He's the one who screwed up Wolverine's wedding, and he's the one who's been making it look like Madeline turns into Phoenix, which takes us back to the X-Mansion, where, you know, maybe Madeline is Phoenix, but then suddenly Scott looks like Phoenix. Everyone is Phoenix. Kitty has a new costume. Take a drink.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, um, Scott is the only one to really realize what's going on as he wakes up in the medical bay. Mastermind is still making him look like Dark Phoenix, so he's having to fight the X-Men who think he's Dark Phoenix and are willing to kill him because of how dangerous Dark Phoenix
1: I've mentioned before that I think Cyclops is at his best when he is facing impossible odds, and this is a great example of that because he is just being a ridiculously adept strategist.
0: Yeah, it's actually really cool to see. I recommend reading this issue specifically. It's kind of awesome.
1: What he ends up doing is, is getting the danger room, basically, to fight for him, which is something that he's going to do again, and he does in a couple different series, and is always a lot of fun.
0: And then he has the unconscious rogue touch Professor Xavier to absorb his telepathy, so she can see that he is who he says he is. Not oh yeah, Professor the Xavier
1: is um, unconscious at this point, because Mastermind somehow knocked him out with a telepathic burst when he went into Cerebro.
0: It works out. They find Mastermind, they track him down, and Storm unleashes this gigantic, violent tempest that... That damn near kills Mastermind, and damn near kills all the rest of the X-Men as well.
1: That's, I think, kind of the darkest point of What for Storm is a very dark arc, but 175 ends on what is at least nominally, or at least intended at this point to be a high note, and that is Scott and Madeline getting married.
0: Yeah, now like I mentioned, this this relationship has developed quickly but organically, and I think a very necessary thing happens, which is that Scott Summers visits the grave of Jean Grey on the day of his wedding. I know your body isn't here, Jean. It's scattered molecular dust on the moon— But I like to think your spirit rests here, near where you were born, in this land you loved. We had such dreams. We figured we'd live forever. I loved you, Jean. I love Madeline. I'm glad she isn't you. What we had was magic. I'll treasure it always. Now, Madeline and I have our own chance to create our own magic, to make what is as unique and special as what was. I hope you understand. Goodbye, Jean. Farewell, my heart.
1: So there are two things I want to touch on here. The first is that Cyclops' arc in this almost exactly inverts Storms, that he goes from being sort of the hard the edge leader of the X-Men to kind of a person in ways that he hasn't really gotten to be before, even back in the Lee Forrester stuff, because there were always supervillains around. The second thing is an entirely incidental detail that cracks me up, which is that despite the fact that his wedding isn't till that night, he goes to Jean's grave in full white tie. I have no prize headcanon for this, which is that as we know from his and Jean's wedding, Scott can't tie a bow tie. So my theory here is that he was practicing... And got it right by accident and was like, you know, fuck it. I'm just not touching this. <laughs> and I, I have I have actually done that on multiple occasions. So, yeah, bow ties are really hard. I believe that. All right. And with that, that wraps up 175. So now a question from you. And this is from Collab Abortion on Tumblr, who says, Rogue was raised by Mystique and Destiny, neither of whom appear to have the colorful language and thick accent that Rogue does. So Where did Rogue get it from?
0: Okay, so most people don't know this, but Rogue actually permanently absorbed a second person, not just Carol Danvers. Um, And this was an alien in the X-Men vs. Micronauts miniseries called Southron, who is this elemental incarnation. Miles is
1: lying to you right now. You should know that. Entertainingly, but totally lying.
0: Well, I like this explanation better. Okay, the actual explanation is that Rogue grew up in the South until she was a young teenager. She was raised by parents who probably also talked that way. And really, it wasn't until she ran away from home after accidentally rendering unconscious her boyfriend, Cody, with when her mutant powers manifested. Not just unconscious, but comatose. Comatose. Maybe uh, she
1: absorbed his accent.
0: It's possible. Maybe that that just doubled the Southern within her. But uh, yeah, so she was Southern for a long time, and her accent was in place before that. And I believe that is all the time we have for today.
1: Rachel and Miles, Explain the X-Men, is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Bobby Roberts. Bobby co-hosts an awesome podcast called Welcome to That Whole Thing, which you can check out online at welcome to that whole thing.com. You can also find him on Full of Sith
0: check out our website at rachelandmiles.com we have visual companion posts for every episode on Sundays you should definitely check those out along with art articles and a bunch of other content
1: new episodes are at comicsalliance.com every Thursday and rachelandmiles.com iTunes and Stitcher on Sundays
0: if you're enjoying the show and would like to support it please take a minute to check out our Patreon campaign you can find a link from rachelandmiles.com and to rate and review us on Stitcher and iTunes
1: and again thanks to our Patreon supporters so much we're working on a new milestone goals those are going to happen in the next couple weeks Um, thank you for your patience with that meanwhile next week we'll be going back to x-men 172 and 173 which we mostly skipped over this episode and we'll be doing it in conjunction with the amazing and groundbreaking and brilliant chris claremont frank miller wolverine miniseries
0: if you want to see wolverine cut up a bunch of ninjas and of course you do you're in luck